Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, our weekly excursion into the world of achievers, uh, brought to you live from our studio here in North Minneapolis. And we bring these achievers to you to shed a bright light uh, on uh, what they've done to achieve, uh, uh, the perspective they have on life and things, uh, their attitude, reactions, uh, ho how they overcome adversity and obstacles on the way to their goals, because uh, I'm straight up, uh, I'm just a believer that we can be anything we want to be uh, if we put our mind to it and we're willing to make the sacrifice of what it takes to get there. And that's the message that I want to leave with our young people, because uh, especially in the hood, they hear all day, every day, people talking about the obstacles and history and the color of their skin and how that's disadvantaging them. And I'm not disagreeing that to a certain extent, but I'm just saying, put it in perspective. And I've been pretty honest with people. Uh, I have never, ever in my life thought that I couldn't be anything I wanted to be. And that sounds kind of crazy, but that's the attitude I was raised with. And it has a lot to do with uh, growing up, uh, I guess, a Southern Baptist and growing up uh, around my family, strong family, great parents, uh, great uh, set of relatives, great teachers, uh, basically the people in, our, in my life and uh, our culture and our values, uh, my parents' teachings. Uh, I just came away very confident that I can achieve whatever I wanted to achieve in life. And that has proven true. If I haven't achieved it, it's my fault. Uh, so we want to talk about that. Uh, so I know I'm going to do a little recap of my week. Uh, so, you know, I have a little grandson. I took him out to a public play area uh, this uh, weekend. And I just want to talk about our children for a second here. And so, you know, as it is, our children are, they're going to get into a few spats. And a couple of young uh, boys got into a little spat. One was about five, the other was about seven or eight. And I just wanted to go and talk to them and see what was the cause of their disagreement. And where I'm getting to is that I checked it out and he told me he pushed him and, and no, he told me he hit him. And uh, I'm like, well, why did you hit him? And he said, uh, because he pushed my cousin. And here's the thing I want to talk about right quick and not spend too much time on. And, and so he said, he pushed my cousin. So I had to take him out. And this is coming from a seven-year-old. And it just kind of surprised me. I don't know. Maybe I'm too old school. And my reaction was, where did you learn that at? And take him out. I'm like, you're too young to be talking like that. And where I'm getting to, one, th two things. Uh. First of all, I don't know what some of these parents are, are teaching their children. I don't know. My mom and dad, they probably would have gave me some type of lecture on how to protect myself. But the language of just taking someone out from a seven-year-old. Uh, and then the other thing I reflected on is this whole playground situation that we were at, this play place. And to me, it was somewhat sad. And I often get sad uh, seeing my... Uh, grandson raised in the city and I've been upfront about this. If I had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't raise my uh, boys in the city. I would have raised them out in the country somewhere in small towns if I had to do it all over again. Uh, 
But I was just looking at these children. Uh, they were in this big old kind of like a cage with you know four little mini uh, playgrounds to it. And they didn't know any of the children or anything. The parents had to watch them. And I just thought about me growing up and just going out the door in the mornings and just playing all day. Nobody had to worry about me. Nobody had to supervise me. I knew all the children that was there. We knew each other. And how it is that, you know, uh, our children, a lot of them are locked up in these apartments and duplexes and things all day. Uh, they're not, they want to go out and play. They can't go out and play anytime they want. And when they go out to play, you can't trust your neighbors. Uh, you can't trust the children they're playing with. And I just thought about this whole small town attitude, that uh, atmosphere that we grew up in where I knew everybody, all the parents knew each other. We weren't concerned about kids racially hurting each other. We were all raised with the same set of values and rules and, and, and morals. And I'm just thinking about our children. And really, I'm going to wrap it up with this. So I was working with a young lady, and uh, she was telling me she was 15 years old. Her mom was addicted to uh, meth, I think she told me, and would uh, they couldn't trust her with the food stamps. She wouldn't feed them or anything. And so this little 15-year-old girl with some type of uh, disability, but physical disability, but she wanted to be a dancer, so she was pursuing her career as a dancer. But here's the thing. Uh, she wanted to work for me because she wanted to make money so she could feed her younger sisters and brothers at 15 years old. My point is this. Uh, we have a lot of children out there in that situation. And we keep thinking that we can replace a two-parent family or family period with programs and things. It's not going to work, people. And we think uh, we can solve problems such as gun violence and, and all kinds of things that's going on in our community with programs. And I'm just a big believer. And once again, I, I, I hope someone proved me wrong. I hope everybody proved me wrong that we're just putting band-aids on these issues until we put the family back together, until we uh, have a certain amount of income where we can uh, live rather comfortably without all the stress and strain, until we have uh, a great education where kids are graduating, reading at grade level, and for me, until we return to our uh, fundamental roots of faith, uh, you guys can try all the stuff you want. You can try all the programs. You can throw all the money at it. It's not going to solve it. All it's going to do is make you feel good, and people are going to make a lot of money and so they can pay their mortgages and buy their Jaguars and things like that. In the meantime, uh, our people will go uh, un. That's so unfed if you look at it from a shepherd kind of religious standpoint. So that's my little intro speech for the day. Uh, we need to give our kids the basic needs. They need safety, of course, food and shelter and stuff like that. They need safety, security, and they need to know that there are people out there, lots of people, I think, who really love and care for them. Until we do that, y'all can come up with all these programs you want, and it's not you're not going to see a difference in a lot of these communities. Okay, that's my two cents worth. Uh, very proud to have our guests here tonight. I remind you to go out to LaysaJohnson.com, uh, subscribe, uh, become a patron uh, uh, of the show, and uh, let us hear from you. Uh, tonight's guest I'm very excited about. I'm always excited about uh, talented uh, people, uh, people I've known, and I know they're good work. 
Uh, it's Mr. Todd Williams. Todd is a businessman. He's a corporate guy. He used to work in did a lot of work in diversity and inclusion. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, I know he is a great servant, very conscientious, and he's just been successful in all he, he does. And I'll, I'll end it with this. My intro with this is that he's one of them MBA guys, and uh, this is an inside joke with he and I. Every time he talk, he's talking these theories and things, and I'm really uh, uh, impressed by what what he's saying. So uh, this evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome my guest, uh, Mr. Todd Williams. Uh, hey, Todd, uh, welcome to Bright Lights. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Lacey. And uh, I'm thrilled that uh, for the invitation to, to join you uh, on the podcast and the stream today. And uh, I'm excited to, to be part of this. And I just love the way this young man conduct himself. Now, I always try to be 100 with people and because people are always finding something, trying to look for something to criticize you for. Uh, Todd and I go way back. And I'm proud to say we, we are members of the same fraternity, uh, Kappa Alpha Psi, uh, proud Kappas. Uh, I have to say he was my little brother. I have to point that part out. Uh, but this young man, I mean, just the way he conducted himself, the way he take care of business, I mean, he has been a blessing. And there was times when I was in leadership, and he was one of my uh, favorite and greatest lieutenants. So uh, let's get started here, Todd. Uh, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, your family, your childhood influences uh, that could have predicted that you turn out to be the uh, great servant and successful uh, business type person that you are. Well, again, thank you, Lacey. Uh, I can only hope that I could live up to that, uh, that kind introduction and, and those very kind words. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm from the Twin Cities. I'm from South Minneapolis. I'm a proud Southsider. Um, and, you know, been there uh, my entire life. My, my family um, came to Minnesota um, years ago. My mother's from Pittsburgh and my father's from South Carolina. And to some of the points you made earlier, I think there's a lot of things that were instilled in me um, very early on. I don't know if it was a predictor of success, but it was foundationally strong to, to, to help me just kind of understand a path that I would ultimately um, go on. So uh, my family, my sis sister uh, were from South, South Minneapolis. Um, as I think about the influences that... Um, shaped me, I would, I would actually say both my mother and father. Uh, my father was in sales. Uh, he was in sales for a number of years and, and still is, finds himself selling something often. Uh, even after he retired, he was very active in the real estate market, selling homes and, and doing things of that nature. And then uh, my mother was uh, a longstanding community servant, um, spent a lot of time um, in the um, in the social sector, really helping um, kids and families um, find their way to uh, productive outcomes, as well as she was very instrumental in the church and in the broader Twin Cities community of uh, founding uh, one of the most recognizable gospel choirs uh, in the region, Gospel Choirs United. And so um, because of that, I, I would argue that those were some of the foundational influences that that, that helped me early on. Um, and then there's other folks that, that came into my orbit after the fact, but uh, I'd say that those were, believe it or not, some of my actually 
um, foundational influences. So uh, what about your siblings and where do you fit in the family? Um, so it's just my sister and I. Uh, uh, my sister still lives in my sister still lives in South Minneapolis. Uh, I'm the youngest, um, so I have a lot of the the, the youngest tendencies, um, but but that's okay. That's that's okay. Um, we get along we get along well, and and um, we both find a way to um, continue to support not just South Minneapolis but the Twin Cities community overall. And uh, I've met your wife on many occasions. Tell us about your current wife. And she, and she is pretty, uh, people. And I hope you don't know, being sexist or, sexist or whatever. But he has a beautiful wife. And tell us about your wife and how long you've been married and your children. Yeah. So um, Anna, Anna's my wife. Uh, we've been married for 21 years. Um, we actually had some pretty grandiose plans for our 20th that got disrupted by um, the global pandemic um, that occurred. So we've put some of those celebration plans on pause. And so we'll, we'll find time to get there. But uh, Ann and I, we've been married for, for, for 20 years, been together for 25. Um, we have two kids. Um, one is a senior in high school and starting to uh, explore college and, 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 and post high school life. And then I have a, a sophomore uh, in high school as well. And so they're they're active in their own um, pursuits. And I think one of the, the best things that we try to do is support them um, regardless of whatever they're trying to um, invest their, their energy in. Um, so we just really try to create a, a, um, an air of support for, for our kids and, and, and what they're trying to do. So, uh, I've always been of the belief, uh, Todd, that when we have children, our priorities have to change and our thought patterns and our behavior have to change. Uh, if you agree with that or whatever, what what changes, uh, uh, how did your outlook change once you became a family man and a father? Well, think, thanks, Lacey. That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I can't necessarily say that, that that too much changed other than the fact that, you know, as you think about purpose, my purpose expanded beyond myself and really started to be around, like, how can I create that environment that's going to be um, the best for our family? What are the best um, interests for our families? What are the, the things that they're going to need um, as best as they can be successful while at the same time allowing them to be them? allowing them to be their authentic self and allow them to um, develop their own friendships and to not overstep, but really just to provide an appropriate level of guidance. But I'd say as far as um, my, my own personal maturity, uh, I'd, I'd say that more than anything, it, it started me to focus beyond myself and started uh, having me think think about others. Now, I know, I think we'll talk a little bit about some of the community service things. So that's always been integral into my personal DNA. Um, but it also needed to be also encompassing of the family. And there's a balance that happens in that space, right? So how do you maintain balance between investing in, in your own kids and their growth and development, as well as there's a lot of folks out there that could also benefit from either ideas um, 
support, development, mentorship, sponsorship. There's a lot of other things that can also happen at the same time. You know what? In all honesty, Todd, I was not surprised uh, by your answer that not much changed because uh, I've never said this to you before, but you just always have struck me as a guy who's always had focus and even kill and, and was responsible and committed and thought about others. So that answer really didn't surprise me. Uh, so let's let's segue uh, into your education and your career choices. Uh, what what were you planning on being when you was like twelve years old? Had you decided what you wanted to be when you grow up at that age, uh, Todd? Well, I'm sure it's documented somewhere in the city uh, because uh, I went to a program at the YMCA when I was much younger, and and I. Uh, someone had asked me, I think I was like eight years old or something. And someone had asked me and I said, I want to be a garbage man because the garbage man rode on the back of the truck. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And uh, I, I actually won a $25 savings bond uh, as part of that. So I, I, I can't make that up. So, so that's, that's part of it. Um, and then I'd say that uh, coming through high school, um, you know, I don't think that college was necessarily on my radar at the time. When I left, uh, I actually started uh, my post-high school career at uh, Minneapolis Technical College. And my my intent there was actually to be in the production arts. Um, as part of that, I had a great um, mentor or friend um, who has since passed away that actually had suggested that I might want to consider marketing and had a number of different things come into my orbit that actually pointed me more in that direction. So from my collegiate experience, I actually started at a historically black college and university, Morris Brown College in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which was a great experience that actually fueled a lot of the things that um, what happened later in my life. And that was leaving Minnesota at the time and going to Atlanta, Georgia and moving into a space where um, I often would see only, um, or many times, mostly uh, a white um, adults, kids, like roaming around. And then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and I lived in the inner city and uh, didn't see a Caucasian person for a lot of time um, after that. And so um, that was probably another kind of growth moment for me it was a pivot that allowed me to kind of understand the nuances and, and help me understand my identity and what I brought to the table. Um, economics, uh, the sheer economics of, of being out of state versus in state and, and finding a way to fund my own education brought me back to Minnesota where I uh, finished at the Carlson School of Management with a degree in marketing. Um, and that allowed me to start my first professional pursuit at the Procter & Gamble company in, in sales. Um, and I worked there. And while I was um, at Procter & Gamble, um, I found myself um, looking for additional opportunities and different additional things to do, specifically with my communication skill set. And that landed me at the University of St. Thomas um, master's program and was able to, um, over time, get a master's in business communication from um, the University of St. Thomas. And so I think all of those things stitched together because those are three vastly different institutions. You go from an AME 
um, historically black college and university to a public land grant university to uh, a primarily Catholic university. Um, all those things, I think, shaped some of the ways that I kind of engage with, move in and out of the world and how I approach um, some of my thinking. Okay. Did you say Johnson & Johnson or Colgate? Palmolive, which company? Procter and Gamble. Procter, oh, neither one of them. Strike three. Uh, <laughs> uh, Procter and Gamble. Uh, let's talk Procter and Gamble. Actually, we're going to expand it, and we're going to just talk the general corporate environment. So what were some of your challenges uh, when you first entered the <clears throat> corporate world, and how did you overcome them? Yeah, great question. So um, it actually starts before Procter and Gamble. Uh, when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, um, just serendipity, um, dumb luck, whatever you want to call it, actually put a person in front of me that actually asked me to um, do some work at Coca-Cola's headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I was well outside of my depth, um, but I decided to do the work. Um, I was a hard worker, and so that seemed to work well. What I would say is um, not necessarily coming from a space with a lot of corporate experience. Um, I was learning in real time. So there was not a set of mentors or, or folks that I could have leaned on specifically in those days that would show me the ropes. And so um, I often tell the story of, of my first corporate lunch. Um, and I talk about the five minute delay. And it was because I was learning how to eat a salad while I was eating a salad. I was taking cues and observations from others around me, feeling at that time that there was a right way to eat a salad. What fork to pick up? What, what knife to use? Are you using the, divert, the dessert um, spoon or fork? All those things I had no knowledge of, and so I had to learn in real time. Now, that would change later when I understood more about the value of, of mentors and sponsors and the and the wonderful role they, they can play in shaping. But um, that was that was the onset of my corporate experience. Um, and then when I got to Procter & Gamble, that was that was a new game. That was my first um, professional job outside of college. And the expectations were high. Um, the information flow looked very different um, than either the internships or the other um, college work that I had. And so it was about how to synthesize that and create my professional identity at that time and deciding what, uh, what I was going to either be a part of or how I would um, continue to develop myself. And I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't share a dear friend of mine um, who, who actually worked at Cray Research at the time invited me to come in to join um, Toastmasters. And so I was actually part of uh, Toastmasters out in the Egan area at the time. Uh, and that was also very transformative because that allowed me time and space to work on me, mm -hmm. to become a better me. So then I could become a better professional, be a better servant in the community, be, be a better either, you know, spouse, significant other, you name it, um, that really afforded me that opportunity. And I actually cherish uh, that time. They were called the Cray Masters. If any of your listeners are old enough to remember uh, Cray Research out in, uh, oh, in yeah. Egan, that was a, that was, I was, I was a, I was a Cray Master. I didn't work at Cray, but I had an opportunity to, 
to join their um, their Toastmasters. So yeah, you know I worked at Control Data, and uh, Cray uh, was one of the people that developed their mainframe. He left Control Data and spun off Cray Research. So in fact, if you look at Control Data and Bill Norris is founded, there's so many companies around here that's based on that came from Control Data. They gave birth to a lot of entrepreneurs and companies here locally and across the country. Hey, I can't uh, ignore what you just said earlier. And I caught uh, this. You're eating salads? Do you know at work and trying to figure out how to eat a salad? And I'm saying this is here. It took me it took me a good 20, 30 years before I, at work I was sitting somewhere eating a salad with some people. So you must have been up there with doing very well and been up there with some very influential eating salads at work and sound like a pretty formal dinner. So let's talk about uh, some of your other things. You mentioned your uh, uh, career. You were uh, also, I understand, a multicultural market segmentation director. Ooh, that's a, a mouthful at uh, at Target, uh, one of our, uh, I think, the local companies. So tell me about uh, that experience and uh, what what does a director of multicultural market segmentation market segmentation do? Well, that's it is a mouthful, and it's it's, mouthful. it's 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 actually it's actually hard, um, a little harder to explain. So let me back up a little bit. And okay. when I found myself at Target, I found myself in a number of merchandising and buying roles, and those are the, you know, at the time the foundational profit and loss owners of of the business. And then I had an opportunity to lead a part of the business that at the time started off calling multicultural merchandising, which was really about understanding the geographic markets across the United States. What are the specific needs of the consumers in those geographies? And how do you think about um, consumer segments in a way to provide the unique needs that are going to allow them to have the most fulfilling life that they can have? Um, and that really was the, the key function. And so uh, I often... Uh, we'll, we'll like refer to, um, I talk about like black dolls and shampoo, right? And so in certain uh, parts of the country, there's a, there's a high demand for African-American dolls. And at the time, um, they were actually really hard to come by. And I would often think beyond just the, the notion of providing product but actually providing a solution beyond that, because I think that there's an extension down to people's self-esteem uh, and the ability to see themselves either in the shelf, in the photography on the wall, uh, in, the, in the consumer base, in the employee base. I think that that's actually really, really important. Um, and so that's what, that's what I did. I'm not here to necessarily talk about Target, but um, that was that was a role that I played. Uh, but I, I throw that against um, it felt very specific. But I, I oftentimes will also talk about um, shampoo. Right. Because shampoo, there's obviously needs within the African-American community, but there's also needs um, with folks that have blonde hair. Right. That find themselves in a the swimming pool and then find a lot of chlorine. That actually, without the, the 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 special shampoo, can turn their hair green, right? And so, 
even though it's multicultural merchandising or became consumer segmentation and segmentation merchandising, it's really, again, about providing solutions, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just about providing things for either an African-American, uh, Asian, uh, Hispanic, or LGBTQ community. It's about saying, like, what are the needs that are very specific? And so you might sell more of that shampoo in Minnesota, let's say, and you might sell more dolls in a market like Houston or Atlanta. So it's about understanding what that looks like while people are still um, interacting with and having a great Target brand experience. I mean, one of the beauties about Target, and again, I'm not here to talk about Target, but right. you could go, and I did, go to Targets across the country, and, and the experience was you know, strikingly like uh, amazing. Right. But the products on the shelf are really, really tailored and, and were catered to the, the, the guests and the segments um, that comprise the geography where that store was located. So I've been on the peripheral following Target's uh, uh, business results, and uh, they've been doing fairly well every time I read the papers because they're a good company and we don't want to spend too much time on it. But you were. Director of Diversity and Inclusion, I think, there. And I know besides traveling the U.S., you also did some international traveling. But tell us uh, what, as Director of Diversity and Inclusion, what was your responsibility and why were you traveling all over the world as a result of it, uh, Todd? Well, I, I think this, I've, if, if you don't mind, I think rather than talk about Target, I think I can share a little bit about what, what I do today, right? Oh, yeah, because okay. Let's it, because well, hold, before you go there, let me give a shout out to Target because oh. someone on your staff, and, and I'm going to say this, they seem to be serious about it because a lot of corporations play games with diversity and inclusion. And I had a chance to meet some of the people at Target, and they were serious about uh, bringing companies in. I really love that and suppliers. In. So I wanted to give that quick shout out. So tell me about what you're doing today. I think uh, somewhere you got a consulting firm, T.B. Williams Consulting. You're doing all kinds of great things. So let's hope we have enough time to make it through it all. So let's, t- I- I- I'll let you uh, lead, Todd. Tell, tell us about what you're currently doing and we'll talk about your community service and uh, stuff later on here. Yeah, and um, so thank you. So for, um, for, for my consulting practice, right, there's a, there's a number of folks on my team that actually run the day-to-day operations, but it's, it's really about helping organizations deliver better outcomes. Um, and that is, that's our prime uh, motivation in how we actually approach the work that, that, that we do. That is an outgrowth from Target because I was fortunate enough to, to, to serve in that capacity and learn a lot about um, how to help large, multifaceted um, matrix organizations find success in that space. And what I've been able to do is to um, bring that to other organizations through my consultancy. And so what we really try to do is we try to help um, organizations, like I said, deliver better outcomes. But we do it a little bit different because we primarily work with um, diversity leaders that are really trying to enhance and build out their strategy. We work with um, C-suite executives, uh, helping them to build out their own intercultural fluency um, so that they can um, deliver the best outcomes they can for their team, as well as the, you know, the, the managers. And what I would share with you through some of my experiences, again, outside of Target, is those are the places where 
many folks start to get stuck. And we try to play a role in helping folks get unstuck um, and to really think about diversity inclusion rather than a bolt-on activity that they must do more so as an unlock of potential um, to build stronger teams, to create more innovation, to deliver those greater outputs that come as a result of treating individuals um, as their individual selves and allowing them to be their authentic selves and to coexist in a space that affords an environment that is both inclusive, um, brings forward the sense of belonging and allows for uh, organizations to actually thrive. That is, that's our, that's our ultimate outcome. So would it be uh, proper or wise for me to assume uh, that your business picked up after the George Floyd incident, that there was a lot more demand for companies offering your type of service? Or I would think, you know, on the outside looking in and not knowing much about the field, that uh, your uh, demands for your services uh, would have picked up greatly uh, during recently. Am I on the right track there, Todd? Um, well, there's two parts. There's two parts to that question. Okay, good. Did the demand increase? I would. I would generally. I, I can. I can only. I can. I can't speak for all right. the, all the folks that do what we do. Did the demand increase? Um, yes. Did my business benefit from that? Um, I. I I can't say because one of the things that we pride ourselves on is creating systemic change. And I would say that um, some of the folks that um, I had a chance to, to talk with really were looking for immediate solutions. Right. Like what are, what are the things that we can put in place today right. that, that gets us there? Um, and sometimes those immediate solutions or those immediate tactics may not lead to the long-standing organizational change that's necessary. So really it's about sustainability. So right. it's one thing to do activities that indicate movement towards an inclusive environment. Right. It's another thing to really rethink and reformulate what are the components of inclusive environments and then how do we skill everyone up Right. Because mm -hmm. inclusive environment is is the aspiration. The challenge becomes, um, in my humble opinion, is if you're not skilled in in building and maintaining an inclusive environment, it, it, it goes away. And the example I, the, the, the example I, I often use or the metaphor I, I use is I talk about the leaky bucket. And if you can envision a bucket with holes in it right? Mm -hmm. I call that the environment, right? Right. And many times there's quick fix solutions where people are putting water in the bucket and the water's going out of the bucket. And so the, the, the knee jerk is to say, well, let's get some more water. Let's put more water in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Well, you haven't addressed the main contributor to the lack of output. <laughs> and that is you still have holes in the bucket. And so while there's a desire to get more water in the bucket, and I, I don't, um, um, I, in some sense, applaud the intent there. 
it's not getting you anything. And so you actually deal with bigger issues of retraining, uh, having to bring in new folks, and you're just kind of recycling it through. Now, if that, if that exists or persists long enough, the challenge then becomes people say, well, this isn't working. Let's not do this. Diversity is not a thing. And it's more a function of we haven't addressed the systemic issues that allow for the attrition to happen faster than the intake. Like there's all these other components. And so we try to help people understand, number one, the difference between the two. Right, and then right. to really focus on saying, how do you create an environment where everyone thrives? This isn't just about marginalized communities thriving. This is about everyone in the workspace being their authentic self and to thrive at the same time. Well, you mentioned a lot of great stuff there. I like the hole in the bucket uh, type analysis. That's what we have going on. As I mentioned earlier with a lot of these issues, uh, we just keep pouring water in the bucket and we don't plug the holes and uh, I won't beat that to death. Uh, hey, uh, so as an entrepreneur, because I, because I, this is a part of the solution that we gotta become uh, engaged in the free enterprise, starting up businesses, uh, the competition, and it's tough. But uh, entrepreneurship can be a very challenging uh, road to go down. And what are some of the challenges? Uh, that you've come across and did you anticipate them and how did you respond to them, uh, Todd, in starting up uh, your business? Yeah, great question. So Lacey, I, I've been unbelievably fortunate. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge um, that first and foremost. Um, not only have I found myself in a, in a place where I get to do something I love day in and day out, uh, which I think is the fuel for the entrepreneur, but uh, I've been thoroughly blessed with a team of folks that work with me um, to make systemic change and to understand um, uh, not just my vision, but their role in, in creating their vision. And, and I have folks that work with me that I'm just as inv invested in their success as they are in mine. And, and it, and it works, I believe, because of that uh, relationship that that I have with the folks that are that are working with me, and because of that, um, some of the headwinds that we may have in, in, encountered as a, as an entrepreneur, I haven't I haven't met um, as much. Now there is the things that you don't anticipate, um, whether that's the um, as a as a small business, um, um, the the administrative <laughs> pieces yeah. and the components. And there's a lot of certifications that we have as a minority owned business. There's components that, that we um, have to be compliant on. We um, I'll give you a, a, an example. Um, uh, we have to also make sure that if we're working with anyone that's part of the federal government, that we make sure that our employees um, have all of their, um, required um, elements kind of taken care of. And so um, we, we, we do that. And it's some of those things that you don't anticipate, but that require time, energy, and effort. Mm -hmm. And again, as an entrepreneur, that's, that's the one thing that's in very short supply is time, energy, and effort. And so you have to be very strategic around where and when you invest um, for 
again, the greater outputs. But the what's fortunate is that I love what I do. My team is amazing. Um, so all the things you said at the at the top of your show is a hundred percent attributed to them, and everything that uh, I've come across is a hundred percent accidental. <laughs> uh, now, uh, time, energy, and effort uh, uh, that translate into money too as a business. So I appreciate that point. Uh, you you mentioned your team, and just briefly, I'm gonna put you on the spot for a second here, but I'm gonna throw you a softball. Uh, are you satisfied with the diversity of your own team? Am I satisfied by the diversity of my own yeah, team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How diverse your current team is. Uh, do you have up future goals for improvements? So that's, I mean, it's it's actually it's actually a good thing. I I would say that um, we're generally um, diverse. Um, there's some folks that work um, directly with us. Um, I mean, we, we cover a, a whole bunch of different identities mm -hmm. and I think that that's important more than anything, whether that's, um, uh, orientation, whether that's, um, race, ethnicity, um, gender, we have, um, actually I'm the, on the, I'm the only man on, <laughs> on our group. And so, um, that's, that's part of it, but, um, we actually don't make our, decisions through that lens right when we think about when we think about our partners we we think about um the outcomes and the perspectives we don't have and then we bring those perspectives into the mix and so when i think about you know because i also think of my team as is our partners as well mm -hmm. right so when i think about our partners and our team i would say um I won't call it the United Nations, but there's a whole bunch of identities that sit in that space. And um, it's a good question to put me on the spot on because I would say that it wasn't strategic as much as it was really expanding beyond a homogeneous point of, of, of appetite. And I often think about, you know, some of the challenges that I hear in certain sectors that are highly male or have different um, kind of configurations. And it, and it brings me back to, um, if, if your listeners ever look up Scott Page at the University of Michigan, he, he does a great example of how he talks about the benefits of diversifying your team and how that actually leads to more innovation. And so I think it's about looking specifically for people that, don't look like you that have sets of views and perspectives that extend beyond where you're at to bring those into the mix. Well, one of the reasons I like talking to this young man, uh, you keep mentioning outcomes and I really like that, but I'm, I'm going to shift gears cause I'm a results guy too. I mean, uh, basically that's what I'm about. I mean, all this other stuff people want to distract you with, I call kicking up dust. I'm just interested can we get this done? Let's get it done. And I'm not care about your, who you are, color stuff. Let's just work together and get stuff done. Uh, but uh, in the world of entrepreneurship and the world of corporate, now let's get back to the low diversity thing in general, not a, a specific corporation, but you know, uh, on the challenge of diversity and, and I'm just going to reflect on my personality. Does the community, well, let me come at it this way. What responsibilities does the various communities 
uh, have in helping companies with their diversity goals and and helping them to really appreciate and understand it. I mean, I mean, are we? Because uh, I, I hear things like, uh, let's say, uh, Lisa, before the pandemic, uh, there are not going to be enough people trained for different jobs and things. And you hear things like that. Is that anything that? And let, let's talk specifically about the black community. Is there anything that uh, we could be doing to help us penetrate some of these environments that we we often complain about? We're not. Uh, represented it in. Yeah, um, I, I think I think it's I think it's a great question. I think it's a hard question mm -hmm. because um, I don't think any group is a monolith, right? right. There's all mm -hmm. these different, um, again, types of either identities or, or people that are are part of it. And the the piece that kind of sets me off a little bit is when we think about you know, this community or that community, right? If you're part of it, it's your community, right? right? And so how do we think about like, what are the needs of our community? So the fact that, you know, I live in, in a certain part of the city has, has no, like the, the Twin Cities metropolitan area is my community. Right. And so with all of its joys and all of its blemishes, I get to enjoy both of those. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you think about like the workforce and the workforce needs that exist out there in the community, I've, I'm a firm believer of, OK, we all play a part in that. We all play a part in understanding, like, what's the greatest need, what role we can play in solving whatever that need is. And I'm a firm believer that if we each do something right to help our community, then all boats kind of rise with that tide. And that's where, uh, whether it's um, young folks dealing with um, uh, educational opportunities. So I was I was with a, I was with a, a group a few weeks ago, and through just a casual conversation, it was it was more of like a fireside chat. It became very evident that there's need for um, mentoring and tutoring in part of the city. And how do we find a set of resources that allows us to activate that? When you take a look at the Twin Cities area specifically, and then the, the sheer number of resources that are available actually um, creates even more um, questioning on some of the gaps that exist out there. Right. Because it's not from lack of resources. It's 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 to me, it's more about like, how do we understand very clearly what's needed? And to the point you just made about outcomes, like what are the goals that we're going to put in place and what are our strategic tactics that will help us deliver greater outcomes? Now, it doesn't mean that we can push aside systemic issues that have existed over time. Right. But we need to um, think about the outcomes given those systemic drivers and those systemic issues. And so um, I've seen a number of executives, um, either firsthand, secondhand, or thirdhand, that can solve a business problem, you know, in nine months, right? The shareholders mm -hmm. demand it. Right, right. I think, uh -huh. I, th I think as a community, we need to hold ourselves to that same kind of corporate standards, is my belief of saying, hey, we need to eliminate 
wealth gap or wealth disparities. We need to eliminate the, the education gap. And we need to do it in conjunction with the community and not as an isolated entity saying, okay, we know what's best for you. It's about really understanding what are the core systemic drivers of the gap. Okay, got it. What's better look like? How do we then think about our role in creating strategies and tactics to move us towards better outcomes? Um, and that requires us to really dialogue with one another. And I think that that's something else that could um, could happen. I, I like that. This is uh, you're getting into an area, and this is probably a follow up conversation. Okay. Offline. Offline. But here's the thing, and I, I hear, and I like what you're saying, and. My frustration outside the corporate world is, uh, and you're hitting on it, what type of methodology do we use to define issues and define solutions? And I'm just finding only in corporate America does it seem like there's some good methodologies for flushing things out, defining issues, number one, and just the whole methodology thing and solving problems. And then secondly, and I've been trying to figure this out, uh, and to me, this is one of the keys. What I've always admired about the corporate world is that your political views didn't matter, gender, sexual preference, religion, skin color. Well, it kind of matters. But when it comes to solving issues and working together, we somehow put that all aside and work together and got things done. And I thought about it for a while, and the... Uh, what's uniting everybody in that scenario is a paycheck and money and things like that. And I'm trying to figure out how we can, outside of the corporate world, get people to work together and get things done. Because uh, what I find outside the corporate world a lot of times is that uh, it starts with opinions and conclusions and uh, there's no data, no logic or anything, no analysis or anything like that. And I see that when I look around our communities, I see that total lack of really being analytical and objective and, and working with everyone to get things done, that that is one of the main hurdles we have to solving some of these difficult issues. You got any response to that? Ty? Yeah, I do. I, um, I, I think it's beyond, I think it's beyond corporate and non-corporate. Okay, good. I, I actually think it's about having a common denominator of what better looks like. And I think when you when you can anchor on that and understand that we may have different ideas on what better looks like, but we're all committed to moving towards better, then I think you actually start to have a movement and progress. So if you okay. if to your point, like in certain in certain moments, it's it's more about the it's more about the, the conflict. Right. Right. And that gets in the way of focusing on the outcome. Okay. Right. And it's it's understanding like, you know, what's what's the outcome? So for an example, let's say in a certain part of the, the geography, there's a significant food desert. Right. I think mm -hmm. we've you know, there's there's parts of the Twin Cities that have been deemed a food desert and some of the largest in the country, right? So 
rather than saying we need to have a grocery store on this side or we need to have this or we need to have these things because those things become debatable, right? The common denominator is, hey, we want to move towards eliminating the food desert. Mm-hmm. And so when we can, when we focus there, I'm, I'm, I believe mm-hmm. that then that allows for us to engage in a conversation. And when we end up on one side or the other, we end up in this contentious moment, we can dial back and say, okay, what's the objective we're going for here? There's going to be, there's going to be easily five dozen thoughts on how to eliminate a food desert. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you go through like, you know, like a scientific model or, or thinking, right? Hypothesize like, okay, we think this is going to work. Here's what we can do. We have enough resources to try three different things. And then rather than just let them run it at run out, treat it like a project and say, okay, here's the deal. In order for this to move to scale, we need to see, and I'll make this up, a 25% increase. So you put the three, the three ideas in motion and those that can deliver the 25% increase, that's the one you go with. But then think about that debate. You're debating about, well, you got 24.6, you got 25.1, you've got 22. Now you're actually debating like what the efficacy of the outcome rather than whether you should or should not. And so you're not sitting on first gear. You're actually debating whether you're ready for third gear or fourth gear. Well, I can honestly say I've seen you at work and how you present things to people and uh, uh, develop a consensus and how you uh, manage people. But this is the follow-up, Todd. Uh, how, how do you explain the fact that real tough problems, and that's, this is my explanation, I like the fact that you push back on me, and I, I like to be proven wrong, as a matter of fact. Uh, but I'm thinking about things like, education achievement gaps that we've been working on for 40 years, uh, the issue of crime, some of these uh, issues that have been uh, part of the uh, urban areas and inner city for a while, even some us, and let's broaden it for a while, uh, the national debt, uh, uh, you know, those are the type of things that uh, uh, I'm thinking that for some reason, uh, tough problems, we can't seem to bring that uh bring people together to solve them and i see a lot of and maybe this is the world of general that people just picking sides and uh not doing the uh scientific methodology that you're talking about to define uh and develop plans to resolve uh problems and issues but that's for the another time because i like the fact that you said you don't see it that way and i like to explore that so a couple of other things well, here. Can, okay. can, 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 I, can I speak to that? Yeah. You know, uh-huh. uh, I, I think there's a lot in the layers that we put on there. Mm-hmm. So I, as you pointed out, you call them tough problems. I just think that they're problems. And I think when we put them in a certain bucket, we absolve ourselves the fact that this can or cannot be solved with a certain degree of, of, of ease. Right. And and, uh-huh. and again, I don't want to spend too much time no, no, talking about no, no, like the, 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 the corporate approach or the non-corporate approach. But I'd say this. We as a society, we solve problems every day. There are significant there's significant resources out there. There's significant um, um, energy, brain power, whatever you want to call it. I think it's about saying, how do we create an environment to just solve problems? Right. And some Uh and some problems may require different things. But if we're not afraid of the heart. So so to your point, 
right? And, and I find this sometimes in some of the work that we do is that sometimes the hardest piece is because it's not easy, but that doesn't mean that you don't, you don't get to not do it. Exactly. You still have to do it, but it's just like anything else. Like we've all been in these situations where we did something for the very first time. And guess what? It was hard. Mm-hmm. Right. But you figure it out. It's like I'm able to walk today, not because the first time I walked, it was hard. But you learn how to do it and you right. have to invest in understanding what that is. And, and, and I only bring that up because many times in the diversity, equity and inclusion space, the conversation starts with, man, this is hard. Yep, mm-hmm. it's hard because we're not practiced at it. But if right. you build the muscle and you build the stamina, then what was once hard becomes differently easy. Right. So now, uh, so we're clear, and I'll move on to, uh, well, I'm a numbers guy. Uh, first of all, well, when I say hard problem, if it, if it has been existing for 30, 40 years, uh, and hard this is not right the right word. Complex might be a better word because uh, the word complicated is really not in my uh, vocabulary but a lot of these issues uh there's a lot of dots to connect uh, as i put it and then i think as important or maybe even more important is our approach uh a lot of times it's look like we got to answer before we do the analysis and that's the type of thing that we come in thinking we got answers and i don't know about your experience but especially in the engineering field a lot of times your initial answer that you think it's going to work doesn't work after you go through the analysis and things. I just see a lot of people think they got answers. They've been trying the same answers on some of these issues for the past 30 or 40 years. They keep on trying it. And I guess they think if we just keep digging, uh, we'll dig ourselves out of this. But that's my comeback yeah. right now. I got some more for you when we get together. No, but, yeah, and, and I know we will, and I know we're running up on time, but I but uh-huh. I do think I do think it's I do think it's worth, you know, acknowledging that, you know, we live in societies based on ease, right? And we avoid the hard. But when it, mm-hmm. when push comes to shove and you need to find alternative fuel sources, you need to find al- alternative meat sources, you need to find these things, we find a way to power through, mm-hmm. right? It, right. It, it, it wasn't that we couldn't have created these things in the 70s. We chose not to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now we're sitting in 2021 and we're now making some decisions, right? That we right. probably could have made earlier, but we chose not to. And so the fact that something exists for 30, 40 years, I think it's important to do two things, reflect back and understand that, but also look forward, right. right? I often talk about the the windshield versus the rear view mirror. Oh yeah, that's it's, a good it's, one. I used it's that a, it's, a, it's, an important, it's an important frame of reference, but we need to be focused on, okay, what's the solve? And this goes to my focus on outcomes. Okay, great. I understand that's how we got here, but now we're in problem-solving mode, so we need to understand how we got here, and then what are the potential solutions, and where does innovation kick in that allows for better outcomes tomorrow? Well, you know what? When we, I'm going to have you on as guests again, and we're going to pick up on... <laughs> Windshield versus rearview mirror. I, I I love that analysis, and I'm gonna dig into that one with you. So as we get ready to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about your community service. I know you've always been out there. I know about your work with the tutoring and mentoring. I know our fraternity has community service as part of our top priorities. We got guide right programs where we work with young men. Uh, tell me first and foremost. Uh, and I, I think you hinted, hinted, hinted on it earlier. 
uh, what motivates you to go out there and serve and give back and uh, be a leader and take your time and effort and sometimes money uh, to help other people and help your community? So uh, I'm 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 in the I I I sit in this place here today by a hundred percent accident. That's it, and so I've been fortunate enough to receive some gifts along the way, uh, and I feel that it's 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 my place and my role to either share those gifts, share that knowledge, share that philanthropy, share and give back. Um, so that um, others can find the best possible life that they can find, right? So whether that's some of the volunteerism that I've done at the University of Minnesota focused on students, whether that's past volunteerism I've done in, um, in some of the social sectors really helping families in transition, whether that's, as you mentioned, our Guide Right program, helping young men kind of create a better future for themselves, the community, uh, and have the best possible them that they can have. Um, I, so that's that's what I wake up to, and I f- I'm unbelievably fortunate, not just within the fraternity, but also um, to be surrounded by a number of people that also um, prioritize investing in creating community and um, and different outcomes for folks through through the gifts that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was telling my studio, oh, I, I could have done that guy. We had a box of Elderberg was halfway covered up the camera there. So a little inside story for our audience. Uh, well, it's uh, pretty close to wrapping up and I'm gonna have you on again. Let's wrap up with a couple of things. First of all, uh, is there any subjects that uh, I was not uh, smart enough or whatever, knowledgeable enough to bring up that you wanted to discuss? No, I've, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm unbelievably humbled and, and honored uh, to, to be part of uh, what you're doing here. So um, I don't think there's any topics. Um, if, if your listeners <laughs> want to hear more from me, that's, that's, that's on them. But, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pack it up here and, and, and go try to try to make a difference and, in, in people's lives and, and that's my that's my sole motivation well i want to hear more from you too because we always have interesting conversation you always give me a new way of looking at things and those are the type of people i admire uh before you go look we got uh people out there who uh don't believe they can be what they want to be who may want to be entrepreneurs or whatever who may want to go to college and and become a director of something somewhere, uh, what would you say to people out there who are not uh, as blessed as we are to have uh, families and things and moms and dads and instill those values in us, uh, but they know they want to uh, be some, uh, achieve some of the things that you have achieved, but they're coming from a much more challenging background, what would you say to them as words of encouragement to let them know that if we can do it, they can do it? Well, um, and I don't, I don't know if this is words of encouragement. Uh, mm-hmm. I would, I would say they're surrounded by people that have experiences and to draw on those experiences 
um, to help them achieve whatever it is that they want to do. If, if I think back on the missteps that I have made, and we didn't talk about, we didn't talk about my missteps. There's a whole, there's a whole closet full of those. Part two, by the way. Uh, part two. Uh, but I, but I would say, I would say on the missteps that I made, and I'd say first and foremost, it actually goes back to the salad, right? I was trying to fit in to a corporate space um, and I found myself wanting to emulate others. And I should have, talking to my younger self, been my authentic self, right? And follow my dreams, my passions, my aspirations as myself. There's a tremendous amount of richness in that. Um, and there's, um, like I said, a closet full of missteps for for me sacrificing that at, at moments in my life. And so I'd say understand what it is you want to get accomplished, right? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself the question not of what's holding me back, but how do I make it possible? There was a there was a a, 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 a gentleman that I spoke to earlier, uh, right after I was in college, mm -hmm. and I and I told him one of the things I wanted to do. I think I, I mentioned earlier I wanted to be in kind of audio and video production. And he was like, oh, he's like, well, you should buy a radio station. And my, and my original reaction was, well, well, I can't do that. Like, that's that's not a possibility. And I started erecting the barriers for myself in, in that moment in time. And if, again, if I could speak to my younger self, I would easily say, the, the, the right question is, how do I make that a possibility if that's truly an aspiration of mine? What are the things that um, I need? And, and I realize that not everyone has access to the resources. However, I think starting down that pathway of saying, how do I make that a reality is one of the things that kicks it into gear. And then ultimately you start saying, okay, well, how do I get the resources? Now, I do know... Um, that there are going to be some some different economic things that are, are coming to the city in the next um, number of months that I think will also help budding entrepreneurs. It will help incubators. It will help folks not just um, support themselves, but also have financial backing and supports. And I think that that is, that is wildly wonderful. I've been um, talking about I can't wait for for, for the bank to open up, at least so I can put a deposit in there so that we can start the money multiplier. Um, mm -hmm. And I, cause I think that that's, that's where the success comes for. You got to invest. Um, and there has to be a dream that others can get behind. Well, I love the dream. Uh, we're going to talk some more about entrepreneurship and getting our people involved in that. Once again, uh, Brother Williams, uh, thank you very much. I call him Brother Williams because we are capitalists together and we have worked together and I've just enjoyed working with this brother and let's just keep doing some great things out there. Uh, one thing I did mention too, because I'm a, this thing is theme is family. Uh, what I admire about uh, our fraternity is that uh, we do have a lot of dedicated brothers and probably the most thing is, and you know this thing, most of us been with our wives for a long time and we were married and committed to our families. We stayed together and raised our children and they're going to stay together, hopefully, at raise their children. And uh, eventually, if we just all keep doing that, well, we'll make a dent in this. Uh, want to explore the challenges of entrepreneurship with you a little bit more. And we are going to do that. 
uh, Brother Todd, say hello to your family for me. Looking forward we'll to seeing you and uh, some of the brothers. Because, you know, the pandemic has kept us from frat meetings, too. I was busy with some other things. But it's always great to see you. And to our audience, once again, Lacey Johnson, Bright Lights. Go out to the website, LaceyJohnson.com. Our guest this evening, a very impressive man, young man. I can still call it. We're still young. Uh, Brother Todd Williams. Thank you, Todd. And I uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you, Lacey. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye.